0: family how you doing did you enjoy that little baby typhoon we had how many how many for you was this a first like here in okinawa get a little tropical storm a few of you okay everybody has power restored. like how many lost power probably not really wow it's a little surprising like remember last year trauma most of us lost power at least for a little while but this was just a little baby one Hopefully it turns up the ocean out there so we get a few more, because typhoons are our snowstorms over here. They are, right? You lived for snowstorms when you were a kid. You got snow days, days off of work. Typhoons are our only hope of snow days in Okinawa, so bring them on during the weekdays, though. That's the only thing. Not Saturdays, but weekdays. Well, I'm glad you're all here. Uh, thank you for making the choice. Um, probably would have been easy for many to stay home uh, this morning, and some probably did need to stay home this morning, but I appreciate that you... You chose to be here uh, with us. Last week we began a new series entitled Relational. And our goal throughout this series is to graciously and humbly counter um, culture and personal confusion uh, with gospel clarity by looking to our Father's word and by submitting to his good design. Today we're gonna consider our father's good design. As it relates to men and marriage. And here's our summary sentence right at the top so you know where we're going. Husbands, the imago day within you is most powerfully expressed when you sacrificially and gladly use your words, your presence, and your strength for your wife's joy. Husbands, the imago day within you is most powerfully expressed when you sacrificially and gladly use your, your words your presence, and your strength for your wife's joy. And before we get after it this morning, I'd like to say something about our posture. Men, I want to encourage us to be humble and eager to learn and quick to run to Jesus for help. The reality is there are no perfect husbands in this room or on this planet. We all need to learn and grow, and we all need Jesus every single day of our married lives, Right? I mean, you probably didn't think so on day one, but every day after that, you knew you did. And I want you to know if there was a line forming in the back of this room because Jesus was here in person, like flesh and blood right now, and he had a line and it was dudes only, and he was signing us up for some coaching and some help in our role as husbands. Our elders to a man Uh, would be towards the front of the line. Not because they're bad leaders and making you go last, and not because they're terrible husbands either, but really because they're good leaders who are very much aware of their need for Jesus and their need for humility and their need for growth as a husband. That's what marks maturity in God's family. That's definitely true for me. And so I want you to know I don't preach at you about Marriage. I stand with you as we submit ourselves to our Father's word and His good good design. And really, if all the elders are going to be up front, I need you to let me be uh, in the front of that. I just that's I need that. We we all do. So let's be humble. Let's be eager to learn, and let's be quick to run to Jesus. Now, ladies, uh, for those of you who are married, and and um, I would ask three things of you this morning as we approach these texts. First, I would ask that you would be, please be quick to give grace where your husband falls short. And you know where your husband falls short. And as we read these texts and consider them this morning, perhaps some of those failings or fallings will be just kind of front and center um, in your mind. Uh, as much as the Father has extended grace to you in Jesus, I would just encourage you to ask your Father to give you that same posture towards your husbands. Second, I want to encourage you, to regularly affirm the Imago Day in your husband. We're gonna see some of those implications for men and marriage as it relates to being created in the image of God. I wanna encourage you as you hear those to think of the positive ways, to think of the ways, in, all, in spite of all his shortcomings, your husband does express the Imago Day towards you. And finally, where your husband needs growth, please keep entrusting him. To Jesus through prayer. Jesus knows more. Jesus is more acutely aware than you are, believe it or not, of your husband's need for continued growth. And he's working at it, and he's more effective than any of us are at cultivating that growth. So let's continue entrusting each other to Jesus through prayer. So let's pray, and then we'll read our two passages for today, and we will begin unpacking them. Father, we need your help. I pray that you would give the men in the room a humble posture, Give us a desire to learn and grow right now and give us a um, a greater likelihood and increase the likelihood that we would run to you, Jesus, to admit that we need help and to, um, to seek the mercy that we can only find from you. Father, I pray that you'd incline the hearts of those ladies who are married here this morning to be gracious toward their husbands, to be encouraging and to be prayerful. And Father, for those who are not yet married, together with us, may we all see the beauty in marriage. And how it points to you, Jesus, and your relationship with the church. And I pray that we would be, our hearts would be filled with gladness as we consider again uh, your good design for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin reading this morning in Genesis chapter 2. I'll begin in verse 18 and read to verse 25. You can just listen along. And then I'm going to flip over to Ephesians 5. And we're going to read from Ephesians 5. Verse 25 down to verse 33. And again, I'll read and and you can follow along. And I want you to notice how the authors connect the two passages. There, There are some shared quotes in there. All right, Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, now over to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm actually going to go out of order because I want to show you how Paul does this. Look at verse 31. Verse 31. Sorry, guys, it kind of throws you off in the back. Verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, marriage. All right, up to 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that, here's, here's his purpose, so that he might present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor, beauty, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, or one flesh. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Last week, we learned that we are created in the image of God, or the Imago Dei. We saw two key phrases Wrapped up in the Imago Day, we are created in His image and after God's likeness. And taken together, we learned that means we're not identical to God, but we are like Him. We're very, very similar. We are very much like Him. And we focused in on the relational piece of the Imago Day last week. Learning that we are made like Him to relate with Him. That's what you're created for, relationship with the God who created you. And we are created like him so that we can and we will relate like him with others. We are created to be in relationship with him and with other image bearers. But here's another important piece. We are made like him, listen, to represent him, not just to relate to him, but to represent him. Uh, the word image in this text in Genesis um, from in his image or in God's image was most often used of an object that had been cut out of wood or stone to represent something else, like a statue um, or an idol. Like you see the shishas all over this island, right? Represented of a physical representation of something else. In the ancient Near East, it was believed that kings actually represented their patron deities, the gods. Ancient Oriental kings were often seen as bearing the image of their God, but Genesis affirms that every human being is made in God's image, not just the kings, if you will. Um, Fascinatingly, Mesopotamians in particular believed that royal figures, the kings and the queens, were sons and daughters of God, that this was in their DNA, like this was actually in their heritage. And that they existed for the sole purpose of representing their God. Man, how close to the creation narrative is that? Now, God's word says that we, we are created for far more than just representation, right? We don't just represent the God who created us. You are created to know him. Like, not just know about him, but to know him as a father. You were created to be loved by him and to be secure in that love and to love him. You were created to enjoy him more than you enjoy anything else. Every other enjoyment in life is meant to be a a foreshadowing of the enjoyment that you can have with your creator God. We're created to glorify him, not to live lives centered or focused or directed towards ourselves, but focused towards our father, right? So it's much more than representing him, but yes, you are created in the image of God to represent him. Now, Guys, this matters to us as husbands. Now, in this representation, we see three aspects in the creation account and throughout Scripture. Some of you have heard this before. It might be a little bit new for some of you. We see three aspects of this representation, a priestly aspect, a prophetic aspect, and a kingly aspect. Now, before I lose you, let me just break that down a little bit, and then we'll, we'll start making the connections. The kingly role. In creation, God charged Adam to rule over creation with a delegated authority from God, the king of all creation. Not that Adam was a king. He, you, don't, you don't see that title bestowed upon him, right? God never said, all right, Adam, you're, it's good. You're a king, now go. It's not that he was a king, but that he served a kingly role in his representative rule over the created order. God said words like this, let them have dominion over all the earth and over every creeping thing on the earth. Now, when some of you hear dominion, some of you think of the nerdy card game. Others of you, <laughs> ah, see, some of you, you got to play. It is kind of fun. Some of you think, um, it, like it has negative connotations, right? Dominion just sounds a little dark, a little heavy-handed. Um, biblically, uh, when, when, it's, when it's being expressed with the Imago day, dominion is a good thing, not a heavy-handed thing. So think stewardship, not exploitation, okay? Um, Dominion, Adam and Eve were, were given dominion to govern with authority on behalf of God. Listen, here's the key. For the good of mankind, that's dominion. For another's good. God said to them, "'Let them subdue the earth.'" In other words, let them conquer and control the created order for the good of mankind and for my, my glory. That's, that's dominion. So taken together, this is known as the cultural mandate, like theologians would call it that. This is the cultural mandate that God gave Adam and Eve at creation. Adam, or all of mankind, was given a kingly authority for the purpose of representing God on this earth And what does a good king do? A good king works or fights for the good of his people, submitting to God's kind rule as he cultivates and displays a culture of life. That's all we mean. That's the kingly role that we're talking about. All right, the prophetic role. Adam received a word from God. He was created through a word. He received a word. He was given a blessing from God. And he was given a responsibility to speak over creation. He named the animals, for example. God gave him that authority. Adam was given the responsibility to speak life-giving words. We heard him do this at his marriage, right? This at last is, he's looking at Eve in the eyes. He's looking at her. He's looking at her and he says, This Is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now Adam wasn't a prophet, again, didn't have the title of king, did not have the title of prophet, but he had a prophetic role. That is, God gave him the responsibility to speak words over creation and to people that would point back to God. That would point back to God's goodness, remind others of God's goodness, and to affirm the goodness of God's work in all creation. That's all we mean by this prophetic role. Okay, So we have the kingly role, the prophetic role, and a priestly role. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, fill this world with more God representatives for the good of mankind. God's intent was that mankind would be present everywhere, serving as representative kings, prophets, and priests, a presence, a priestly presence, that points back to the goodness of our creator whose image we bear. And in this priestly role that God has given to us with the Imago day, we are to be present and active for the good of another, encouraging them and pointing them to Christ. That's what we mean. Now, at this point, I imagine many of you are thinking... Um, John, I thought we were gonna talk about marriage. Like, what's all this prophet, priest, and king, and Lord of the Ring, like, business going on here? Help me out. I'm glad you're thinking that, and I'm glad you want to ask it out loud. Um, Husbands, here it is. The Imago day within you is most powerfully expressed when you sacrificially and gladly use your words, your prophetic role, your presence, your priestly role, and your strength, your kingly role, for your wife's joy and for her good. We are created for this. This, What you are called to as a husband is not just roles, this is identity and it is deep within you men. Like this is a big piece of what it means to be created in the image of God. You're created for this. Not that we're kings, right? You're not a king, don't go home and give yourself that title. Okay, if you do, ladies, please email Crystal, email one of the elders. We'll set up a little chat. No kings, okay? You're not a king, but you have a kingly role. And like a good king, what Jesus is calling to you two, men, is that you would use all of your strength, every ounce, every ounce of your strength for your wife's joy. Not that we're prophets. But we have a prophetic role, man, and like a faithful prophet that we would use all of our words for her good and pointing her back to the God who created her and reminding her of, her, of his goodness and the image of God within her, all of our words for her good. And not that we're priests. Well, Gotcha. Yes, you are. Like for those of you who are followers of Jesus, Jesus did actually say, you're now a kingdom of priests. Like you, you, you do have a priestly role, but Jesus calls you a priest um, in multiple places. You are a priest, and Jesus calls you in your priestly role to use your presence for your wife's joy and for her good. All right, so let's, let's counter some cultural confusion with gospel clarity here. Men... Your identity as husbands and your role as husbands is not defined by culture or generational norms, right? those, are, those are changing. Every culture is different. Every generation is different. My grandfather's generation, the greatest generation, is not authoritative in its expression of masculinity or what it means to be a husband. Maybe they got some of it right. They also got a lot of it wrong. And you can say that about every generation and every culture. What is authoritative is the Imago Dei within you and what God says to you as a man created in the image of God and what it means to be a husband. It is transcultural. It transcends culture. Okay, so it's anchored in the Imago Dei. Here's another another point that we need to make, um, some confusion that we need to clear up with gospel clarity. Culture would say that there is no real difference between the role of husband and wife, almost that they're interchangeable or could be interchangeable. Men, the Father has entrusted you with a particular responsibility that is unique to you and not extended to your wife. It is yours. It is the responsibility of leadership, and you are created for this. Yes, you are created equal. You are equally created in the Imago Dei. You are morally equal, spiritually equal, um, emotional, no, she's emotionally superior to you. She's intellectually superior to you. She's a lot superior to you. But in the Imago Day, we are created equal. So we're not talking about um, being inferior to one or the other. We're just talking about this reality that God is explicit in the creation account and throughout scripture that in the creative design, he creates equal with very different and distinct roles for very distinct purposes. We'll see that in Ephesians. But men, this responsibility of leadership is yours. You're created for this. You're created for this as as an image bearer of God. And what we're gonna see in Genesis is Adam absolutely killed it early on. Like he got after it and got after it really well. In his kingly role, we saw Adam reflecting the image of God in him when he initiates relationally for the good of another. What did he do with Eve? As soon as the father presents her to him on their wedding day in the passage that we read in Genesis. He initiates with her. He closes the distance. He sets the pace of their relationship and the tone of, of their relationship with what? What did he say or what did he do? His first words to his wife, his first words were a romantic ex- expression. Did you see how those words were set apart from the rest of the text? It means they're poetry. He might have even sung these words to her. He probably did. First expression, he initiates with her, he sings to her, um, he uses his creative strength for her joy. In his prophetic role, Adam reflects the image of God in him when he speaks these life-giving words over her. First, what do we see? Adam affirmed God's creative work in his wife. He said, you have been taken out of man. In other words, that was his way of saying, holy cow. God did this, and this is, you are—you are beautiful. He immediately affirms God's creative work in his wife, and it, as as a beautiful thing, as a as a as a glorious thing. God did this. Second, Adam affirms his commitment to her, uh, the, the nature of their relationship, by saying, "This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh." Of my flesh. In Hebrew, uh, this kind of language pointed to a oneness and a unity. This is just Adam in more poetic words and doing a lot better job than many of us do, guys, communicating to his wife, you're mine. We're one. I'm never going to let you go. I'm committed to you. You're my baby. Like You're you my girl. This is, this is it for life. Adam said it much more eloquently. Third, Adam affirms the intimate nature of their relationship. He says, my flesh and my bone. Where this was literally true for Adam. This is how God created Eve. It stands to be symbolically true of all marriage from that point forward. That is the nature of the marriage relationship. And then maybe we don't see this, but Adam, when, he, when he, na- he, he says, she shall be called woman, he names her. And in Hebrew, woman is Isha. And the word for man, do you know what it is? Ish. So what Adam does is, in naming her, he, he restates his own name and then embeds his name in hers. Now, we still kind of do that culturally, don't we? We share the name. This is Adam taking that initiative right up front, communicating what the nature of their relationship would be. This would be irrevocable. His commitment to her would be irrevocable. All of this points to his responsibility in the family structure, a God-given responsibility. It communicates his intent to exercise kingly strength on her behalf, not to rule over her in a heavy-handed way, but to exercise the leadership that God has entrusted to him for the good and the flourishing and the joy and the goodness of the woman that God the Father had just gifted to Adam. Guys, I want to point out, if you are memorizing Scripture, and we should be, the first recorded words in Scripture out of a man's mouth is a romantic expression to his wife. It's original poetry, it's a song. Fellas, that is the Imago Day on full display expressed from a man's mouth. Affirmation of God's creative work, affirmation of commitment to his wife, and affirmation of the intimate relationship that they have entered into in marriage. The first recorded words out of a dude's mouth in the Bible is a love song to his bride. We should notice that. That's something to emulate. Adam killed it in his priestly role. Adam reflected the image of God in him when he is present relationally for the good of another. Reflecting the goodness of God and affirming the the work of Christ in them, he did this through his words and through his presence he, he had joy and creativity. Notice like Adam is not, I mean, you can imagine the moment. Adam's looking around for companionship and all of a sudden the father gives him Eve. His mind is absolutely blown. And now with creativity and with joy, he's speaking these words to her. It's not this begrudging duty because he's a husband. It's born out of the, the joy that is his because of the privilege um, that's been given to him to be in relationship with this woman. So with joy and creativity, he uses his presence for her good. And look what was cultivated in that moment. The author says that Adam and Eve were together. They were naked and unashamed. No shame in this this moment. In Hebrew, that phrase, naked and unashamed, is an idiom. It's idiomatic of innocence. In other words, there's nothing to hide between the two of these people. Everything is out in the open. There is nothing relationally to hide, and there's a reason for that. There's total transparency, and there's nothing to cover up, nothing to fear because of this expression of covenant commitment. I really like what John Piper says about this. He says, I can be free from shame for two reasons. Two reasons I can be free of shame. One is that I'm perfect and that I have nothing to be ashamed of. Any takers for that one? Okay, so we're hoping the next one is good. Second, or the other, is that I am imperfect, but I have no fear of being disapproved by my spouse. The first way to be shame-free is to be perfect. The second way to be shame-free is based on the gracious nature of covenant love. In the first case, there is no shame because we're flawless, and none of us can identify with that, none of us. In the second case, there is no shame because covenant love covers a multitude of flaws. Guys, you want to express the Imago Dei in you as a man? You... Pursue and initiate and in close distance and communicate with your wife in such a way that this is how she feels in your presence. Not because she's perfect and not because you have to lie to her and say, Baby, you're perfect, because that's not going to help, but because you can look her in the eyes and say, I'm committed to you, I love you, and no matter what, In the same way the Father gives me grace, in the same way the Father gives me mercy and loves me unconditionally, I am committing myself to show you that same grace and that same mercy and that same unconditional love. Man, how many of us grew up in, in Sunday school? Now, a lot of you are so much younger than I am, so you may not identify with this, but you grew up in all these different churches, all these Bible stories were told. I grew up with flannel graph. It's not a shirt, it's not a shirt. Flannel graph—I don't even know the magic behind flannel graph. It's probably demonic. It's where these like paper figures magically stick to some kind of felt board, and there's just there's a set for every Bible story in the Bible. And so you go to church as a kid, you go to Sunday school, and what's the first story you're going to get? Well, what does the Bible say? They were naked and unashamed. And for whatever reason, all these artists just feel compelled to get them as naked as possible. But they're always like behind a tree or what's some, They're just always these awkward pictures that become this silly thing. But even now you get the children's storybook Bibles and you're always like, what's Genesis 1 and 2 gonna be? Like, oh my goodness, here we go again. Generation after generation. We need to get past it as a cute Bible story and understand it as our father speaking authoritatively over his created order and, and realize that there are deep and lasting implications in this story for us. So men, here's the deal. This account stands as a pattern or a paradigm for all of time for us as men who bear the image of God in the way that we are to relate with the women that God has given to us. That's why the writer says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Aren't those the words we saw in Ephesians written thousands of years later? And in fact, thousands of years later, but before um, Paul, Jesus had this account. Or this experience. The Pharisees came up to him and they tested him by asking Jesus, is it lawful for, to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We'll deal with divorce a little bit later in this series, divorce and remarriage. So we're not going to go in that direction this morning. Here's what I want you to see, though. Jesus addresses a generational and a cultural question by pointing them back to creation. So here's another point that we need the gospel to give some clarity to what can be some cultural or personal confusion. Uh, We we mentioned something like this before. Marriage is transcultural. What we mean by that is marriage is not a cultural construct. It's not something that we evolved into so that we would not uh, become extinct as a species. It's not reformed or redefined with each generation. Uh, Cultures don't have the authority to reach back and speak authoritatively over what marriage is or what it is not. Um, It is God's good, creative design. Marriage is transcultural. Here's another point of clarity that I think we need to, that the gospel gives to us to counter cultural confusion. Uh, Men, young men, single men who are in the room, um, you need to know this. Our culture would say marriage entraps you, enslaves you, put chains on you, limits your freedom, takes away your freedom, crushes your joy, It should be delayed so that you can experience what a man is created to be for a decade before you settle down. And those are all lies. Marriage is really, really good. Remember, God created everything and he spoke over it. This is all really, really, really good. And then he did one more better and he gave the gift of marriage before things were all jacked up through sin. Marriage is really good. It is a gift from our Father It is not a trap. It is not prison. There are no chains associated with it. In fact, quite the opposite. Committed covenant love is the most freeing thing that your heart will know, men. You seek freedom through free relationships that are without commitment, benefits without the commitments, but there is no freedom there, only further slavery. Freedom by God's beautiful design is found through covenant love and committed relationship, there your heart will be fully free. Marriage is really, really good. But in spite of how good it was, Adam would fail. We see this in Genesis chapter three, verse six. It said, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, this is the scene where they're tempted and drawn away from the God who created them and that the tree was desired, to be desired to make one wise. She took of it, she took of the fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was, notice these words, he was, with, he was with her in this moment, with her, and he ate. What's the author saying by making sure to point out that Adam was with her in this moment? He's saying that Adam was physically present, but spiritually absent relationally. In fact, what we see in Adam is a failure in all three of his, of his roles, prophetic, the words, the priestly, the presence and the strength, his kingly role. He failed as a prophet because he had received God's word, but in this moment he rejects it, and instead of speaking words to Eve that would remind her of God and his goodness, and, and all of every aspect of their relationship with him, he rejects God's word, he entertains the question, I don't know, did God really say, maybe, maybe he didn't. He rejects the word that was given to him, he listens to other voices, and then he says these absolutely crushing words a little bit later when God is calling them to account in verse twelve. The man said, "Father, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate." What's, what's he doing here? What is Adam doing? He's pushing all the responsibility, all the blame, all the shame onto Eve's shoulders. He's he's crushing her with his words failing miserably in his prophetic role. He fails as priest. He's created to be present with his wife, but not just present like there, like fully present, fully present. He's created to be present with his life and to lead her into God's presence. Instead, what happens in verse 8, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Guys, Adam was created to walk with his wife into God's presence and in this momentary failure, he actually walks with his wife away from God's presence. He fails. He fails as king. He rejects God's rule over his own life. Believing the lie, you can disobey God and you will not die. You will not experience a death. Don't worry. There are no real consequences for your apathy or your disobedience. It'll be okay but there were real consequences. There was a death to die. They individually died a death that day. Um, As as the head of all creation, um, all mankind died a death that day in Adam's sin. And relationally in their marriage, they died a death that day. Paul would write in Romans that sin came into the world through one man, Adam. Adam and death through sin. There are very real consequences, men, when we fail in the roles that the Father has given to us to use our presence, our words, and our strengths for his glory and for our wives' good. We see a couple tendencies in Adam in that moment, didn't we? In Adam's failure, we saw saw at least two tendencies. He was was present with his wife, but not active. So what would that be? There's some apathy going on, right? We, We see... In a man's heart, a tendency towards apathy rather than embracing the roles that God has given him in the Imago Day. Or after he's apathetic and they fail and then they walk away from God, what do we actually see from Adam? It's on the other end of the, the spectrum from apathy. We see aggression. He's now aggressive towards his wife through his words and through his posture when, when their father shows up. It's not me. It's it's I don't have a problem, it's her. Our marriage would be fine. It's her. I would be following you, God. It's her. It's her. It's her. It's her. It's her. Apathy or aggression in our words, in our presence, in, str- in our strength. In full-blown rebellion, guys, that apathy leads to straight-up absence. The seeds of apathy grow into the fruit of absence. And on the other end of the spectrum, the seeds of aggression when we are not submitting ourselves to the Father and living for our wives' joy and good, those seeds of aggression, when words begin to crush, those those seeds of aggression lead to abuse and full-born rebellion from the God who created us. Ladies, I just want you to know if you are experiencing extremes on those spectrum, the straight-up absence or the aggression that has turned to abuse, please do not suffer alone in silence. The leaders of this church care for you as a family, we are committed to your well-being. We want to be engaged, and we want you to reach out. We, we want you to know that we love you, and we are here to serve you. Adam's failure introduced a curse over marriage. Marriage now is hard, hard work. It is hard fought. There are not easy days. There are some days that are easier than others, but they are hard fought. The wins in marriage, the growth in marriage, the joys in marriage are hard fought. The, the work that it is to be the husband, guys, that God has called you to be will be the hardest work of your life. Guys, I'm sure you can relate to this. Has, has being a husband come naturally to any of you? No. I asked that question the wrong way. Who wants to raise their hands? Yeah, I'm killing it, man. (laughs) Mommy always said I'd be an awesome husband. Right? Okay, so really bad way to ask that question. I'm sorry. So let me just state it this way. I think most of us can relate. Being a husband has not come naturally to me. In fact, I will say because of Adam's curse, I actually find it to be counter to so much of what I think and feel and desire, right? It's not just easy. It's like the opposite of what you feel like you want to do, right? It's, it's hard. It doesn't come naturally. We know that our heart leans towards apathy. I think most of us lean in that direction rather than the aggression, um, in the direction of aggression. We lean towards being apathetic spiritually in our homes or relationally. We're not cranking out poetry like Adam did. We're not singing to our wives like Adam like we just know. We just we're like yeah, I'm I got a whole lot of apathy in these different areas of my life. Some of us do lean more towards aggression. You have a an anger, a temper that is often uncontrolled and you speak crushing words to your wife. But guys, the gospel is good news for imperfect, weary, defeated, discouraged, and failing husbands. The first Adam failed. And all of Adam's sons failed after him. We fail, guys. But where Adam failed, where we failed, Jesus succeeds. Jesus is the one that the scripture calls the second Adam, the last Adam. And where the first Adam failed, the second Adam perfectly succeeds because Jesus is the true and better prophet, priest, and king. As our rescuing king, Jesus rescues us from the consequences of Adam's sin and our own as our prophet and our high priest, Jesus re-images for us the Imago day that is so marred within us by the fall. Like where it is difficult to see that Imago day in us, where it is so difficult to see, it is crystal clear in Jesus. Jesus is the image, the Bible says, of the invisible God. In other words, he's not created like God. Jesus is not created, he's not an image-bearer. Jesus is the image that we're created like. And so he took on human form and he dwelled among us. And the Bible says that we, we saw the glory of God in Jesus. We saw the image perfectly displayed in Jesus. He is the exact imprint of his nature, the writer of Hebrews would, would say. Jesus perfectly displays the Imago Day And men, that is exactly why Paul links Ephesians 5 with Genesis And it's why he points us husbands to Jesus' example and says, that's how you love your wife. Ephesians 5.31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife. Look, that's Paul's way of saying marriage was created to point to Jesus. So when marriage is good, it is just a shadow of how good Jesus is to us, his bride. And when marriage is a mess, and on many days there is a whole lot of mess, when marriage is a mess, it points to our need, men and women, for the true and better prophet, priest, and king. So here in Ephesians 5, we see the Imago Dei expressed the way our Father intends. So Paul says, husbands, here it is. Here is the amago day expressed in the most masculine way for those those of us men who are married. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus is the perfect king. He uses his strength for the good of his bride. The perfect king set aside his crown. He took on the form of a servant. He left personal comfort to pursue his bride. Gladly sacrificing, suffering, serving, and even dying for her good. That's the definition that Paul is attaching to love in Ephesians 5. That's love. That's the kind of compassionate, servant-hearted leadership Christ calls us to. Men, that is the intended expression of the Imago Dei in us. Jesus is the perfect priest, too. He uses his presence for the good of his bride. He gave himself up for her. For what reason? Look, verse 26. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then Paul says in verse 28, Guys, in the same way, husbands, you should love their wives. So as priest... Jesus became present with her. He set his bride apart for special attention and care. And Paul points to the rescuing work that Jesus accomplished for his bride, the church. Forgiveness at the cross and cleansing of sin that's expressed through our baptism and restoration and redemption, making her whole again, making her whole again so that she, as an image bearer of God, can grow living into the Imago Day created and are marred by sin but restored by Jesus. So let's just do a full stop right there, guys. No hero priests in this room. Like all of that that Paul just described, only Jesus does that work. Like you don't fix your wife, you don't restore the image of God in her, She's not dependent upon you to be the whole version of herself. Like like Jesus does all of that for her. Jesus does that. He's, He's the perfect priest. What Paul's saying is in the same way that Jesus does these things for her good, that's the same posture and the same pursuit and the same intent that you adopt towards your wife and you chase after her in these same kinds of ways for her good. I do all this work. I want you to mimic me in the way that I'm doing this work for her And you love her in the same way, to become present with her, concerned for her well-being, her flourishing, her restoration and her wholeness, her joy in Christ, growing fully into the woman that God has created her to be, her true self in Christ, her gladness, that we would give ourselves to this fully present, our highest priority and our unwavering commitment in the same way that Jesus accomplished the work that he did for his bride. And Jesus is the perfect prophet, he used his words for the good of his bride. Notice what Paul says here. Washing of water with the word. And then Paul says, "Men, in the same way you husbands should love your wives, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it. We don't even have to explain that verse. You're like, yes, I do. I love myself and I take good care of myself. Like that's just, that's, that's what Paul, that is natural for us. We care for me and we do what our bodies need and we do what, I mean, we just, we do me. We do it very well and very naturally. Paul's saying in the same way that that comes naturally to us, to live out the Imago day. We, we live that way towards our wives, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So this question should pop to us. What nourishes or feeds my wife's soul? Guys, do you know the answer to that question? If you went home today and said, babe, I got a question for you. Um, What would you say are the top three things that really just, just nourish your soul and make you feel full? Can you already write those three things down? And are you giving yourselves, giving yourself, to pursue that nourishment for her, to love her in that way. I think the second question that pops there for us is, what makes my wife feel cherished? Baby, what are the top three things I do or say that make you feel like I absolutely cherish you? And I know you can already write down the top three or five things that she's going to say, right? Yeah, good, good. We should be able to answer that question without asking. But we should also ask the question because maybe it changes from season to season. So the question is asked, and then we need to ask ourselves, am I committing myself to this singular pursuit? All right, we gotta wrap it up. But man, I, um, I need you to look at me for a minute. Like, let's just get some eye contact going. What I want you to know is we can do this. Like, this sounds very overwhelming to many of us. Sounds very intimidating. And the reality is, uh, when I was home this summer, I was in Binghamton. Uh, The city of Binghamton lies at the confluence of two rivers. And so Binghamton is regularly flooded because it receives too much rain and dirty water than it can handle. That is us men, for most of us relationally. We feel like we live at the confluence of two rivers. One of those rivers is, is our parents' They did some good and they, did some, they, 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 they didn't kill it in all of these areas. And all of that water is funneling into our hearts. It's not stuff that we've done or said. It's just implicitly learned. And we have some deprogramming to do, some unlearning to do, some growth in the Imago day. And then there's this other river, this other tributary area of, of the culture that we've grown up with, right? And then there's a third river. It's our own polluted hearts. And all of these rivers are slamming together in one relationship. That's what we're up against but you can do this. You can live into this and you can be this kind of husband first because you're created for it. This is what Jesus created you for, men. But secondly, like you bear the Imago Day. But secondly, you can do this be- simply because Jesus said he is recreating this image in you. If he's your rescuing king, if by faith you have repented of your sin and you believe in Jesus, he is actively restoring the Imago Dei in you so that you will be more and more like him as you grow. You can be this kind of husband in Christ, guys. Every one of you, no matter your background, no matter the negative influences, you can be this husband because of Jesus. So, in closing, single men, I want to say, especially you young men, like you're still in your teenage years, you can cultivate these aspects of the Imago Day in your own life well before marriage. You can be prophetic in your words by speaking life-giving words. You can be priestly by choosing to be uncomfortable to be awkward, to get into community, to be around people who are unlike you and to practice real presence with them for their good. So you choose community not for what you get out of it but for your good. Your choice, young man, to participate in community in expressing the Imago Dei is to do it for their good. You can do this and you can be kingly by identifying the strengths that God has given you, young man, and, and finding ways to leverage those strengths for the good of other image bearers. And you will be years ahead of most of us as men who find ourselves in marriage struggling in some of these same areas. Men, for those of you who are married, probably most of us have to go home today and this week and confess some particular failures to our wives. Let's do this. Let's run to Christ. Let's find accountability in this community. Don't be alone alone. And perhaps this week, I think each of us could find one daily way to sacrificially and gladly use our words, our presence, and our strength for our wife's joy. We can do this. And what I want to leave you with, men, is this the really important question is not, how badly have I failed? The really important question is, in your failure, in your apathy, in your absence, in your aggression, will you turn to Christ? And will you confess to Christ and find mercy from him? Will you cry out to him, Jesus, have mercy on me, forgive me, and help me to live out the Imago day that you've created in me? Help me to be more like Christ in the way I pursue my wife. My Restore the Imago day in me. Jesus, have mercy on me. Let's actually go there together and pray that together before we close. Jesus. I come to you on behalf of all the men in this room. We are, we are marred image bearers. We express the image so imperfectly. We want to grow into it. We want to grow into it. But for many of us, it seems like one step forward and 20 steps backwards. We feel like we win some days, but we feel like we, we lose more often. And sometimes the pressure and the negative influences and what we have known in earlier years just crush desire. Father, I pray that you would plant a seed of of desire in the heart of every man today to initiate, to pursue, to love like Jesus loved his church, that we would aspire into these these roles, these prophetic, priestly, kingly, kingly roles where we use our words, our presence, and our strengths for the good of our wives and for your glory. Jesus, we confess our failure. We admit our desperate need for help. We beg you to show mercy to us. Father, for your glory and for the good of the women you have gifted to us and for the good of our community, for the good of our children, please do this in us by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.